So as I said, we're looking at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the actual title of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, and may, may, maybe many of you have skipped over that book like I did for years. You kind of look at it, you're like, there's no way that we can understand this. So uh, I'll let someone else tell me, and I won't pay attention to it. Uh, and so I did that for a good chunk of my uh, life. Uh, but as I got older... And I heard, uh, you know, lots of different ideas about the book, and it seemed like people were using the book to kind of manipulate or to to prop up their own uh, personal uh, point of views and perspectives and political ideas and religious views. Um, I started to get more interested in looking at what the book was saying uh, for myself. And as I studied the book, it became clear to me that the context is incredibly important. So as we look at the context of the book, why it was written, who it was written to in the first century, it was written to seven specific churches in the first century. And it's using language from that culture, but a lot of language from the Old Testament. It's the, it's the most referenced book in the whole Bible. There is something like 700 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so it's steeped in Old Testament uh, metaphor and imagery and symbolism, telling us things that are relevant for our own time. Uh, when we read the book of Revelation, we need to recognize that it's not a newspaper account of particular historical realities uh, that have yet to happen. It is talking about things that were, were happening for the church to whom it was written to. And it was also written for us because we, re- we recognize that the things uh, that is being told about, uh, being talked about in the book of Revelation are timeless. They're things that are true for the first century church that are just as true for us today. And so as we've looked at the different themes, as we've understood what the symbolism has been about, what these metaphors are unpacking, we recognize that you know Babylon wasn't just, uh, this is to use last week's example, Babylon wasn't just a reality for the first century church living under Rome, which was modern day Babylon, but Babylon is actually a reality for us today uh, who live in a similar uh, different but yet similar uh, type of time. And so the call to discipleship is the call of the book of Revelation. The, the book of Revelation is not primarily a crystal ball talking about the future so that we can understand what's going to yet happen. It's a, it's a book that is talking to us about now and our present situation and how to be a disciple of Jesus in the world that doesn't have Jesus as the center. And yes, there are some things that uh, foreshadow what's coming at the end of history as we know it, but the majority of the book is speaking to this time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And when, the sec- and when Jesus comes for the second time and he brings history as we know it to its conclusion, there are realities that we get to look forward to in a trajectory, as we keep that in mind, that, uh, that changes how we live today. And as we get to the end of the book of Revelation, which now we are getting to, uh, funny, some of you are saying, finally! Finally! Uh, we are, we're rounding the corner into chapter 19 today, and we start to get this vision of the end of history as we uh, turn the corner. And so again, John is writing this book to the church in the first century, to seven particular churches in, uh, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, John's on the island of Patmos writing this because he's a prisoner there, uh, and he's there be- as a prisoner because he believes that Jesus is Lord and that there is only one Lord. And in a culture that required him to bend his knee to Caesar as Lord, uh, John said, I won't do that. And so he found himself on the island of Patmos uh, as a prisoner, but he's writing to these churches to encourage them to stay faithful to Jesus and the way of Jesus, uh, even in a culture that is making it very difficult to do, do so. Um, and so we pick up this text again, and as I said, in Revelation 19, I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able uh, for the reading of God's word as I read this After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. Uh, He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, the voices rang out, praise the Lord. The smoke from the city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd of the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness to Jesus. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As a quick note, I love what I love about the uh, what we see here at the this last verse in verse ten is that John is uh, not trying to pretend like he has it all together. We see multiple times in the book of Revelation where John worships the wrong being. In a book that is all about worship and all about Jesus being the center of the universe and us giving our worship and our adoration to him, John even gets it wrong. In the midst of the apocalypse, John uh, gets confused. And so for many of us, maybe we have also felt like we've gotten it wrong, that we've been uh, confused and we need to be reminded not to bend our knee to anyone but Jesus. And John himself needed to be reminded of that uh, twice I believe in the book of Revelation, he actually worships someone other than Jesus and he's corrected and and he's told to only give your worship uh, to Jesus. And so up until this point in the book, just as a quick recap, we've been introduced to some of the enemies of God. And and so we've seen uh, the enemies, the the dragon, uh, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth and the dragon represents the serpent, uh, represents Satan, represents the deceiver. Uh, he's given different names throughout the biblical text, but he is the primary enemy of God who is working against what God is trying to do in the world. Uh, He wants to be like God and he hates Jesus. uh, And so he is trying to work against what Jesus is trying to do. And so the dragon is the evil force or entity that is behind uh, all that is sinful and evil uh, in the world. And then we see the beast of the sea, which is dragon manipulated political power. And the beast of the earth, which is dragon-manipulated uh, religious power. And we rec- as we read the text, we see that the, the beast of the earth breathes life into the beast of the sea. And so basically what this means is that the, the beast of the earth is like this propaganda machine, this, uh, this religious fervor that actually breathes life into the political world to, to function and work in a way that is anti-Christ, that is working against the way that Christ wants to work in the world. And so the dragon, even though it's the primary enemy of God, does not come at, uh, does not come at the people of God directly. He comes at the people of God through the beast of the sea, through the beast of the earth, creating destruction uh, in our world. 
The dragon would love to go after Jesus, but we know 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected three days later, and was victorious for all time. And so the dragon cannot touch Jesus. The dragon cannot change the results of that victory. And so what the dragon is doing is going after those whom Jesus loves, which is his people, his church. Last week, we were introduced to a fourth personality in this whole uh, scenario, and that was Babylon, or the great harlot, this woman. Uh, And so Babylon has been used to refer to many different cities or empires throughout the biblical text, literal Babylon, but also many other cities and empires, um, going all the way back to Genesis 11 into Revelation. Uh, and, And it describes cities or societies or cultures that have said, I am and there is none besides me. Cities and cultures that think that they are the center of the world, that decide that they are going to make themselves their primary focus. Uh, they have moved God out of the center of their, uh, of their society and of their life and of their worship, and they have made themselves the center. This describes uh, the, the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian city. So when John was writing, this is referring to Rome, uh, but when he's writing to us, it's obviously not referring to Rome. It's, it's referring to whatever uh, social, uh, whatever society is actually in power that is dictating how we live, that is moving God out of the center, uh, that is defining what truth is and requiring that we bend our knee to what, how it defines truth. Uh, and so we can recognize that we also live in Babylon today. Babylon is not a locality. Babylon is a mentality. And so we have these four things working against the church, working against God's people. And so the majority of the book of Revelation is telling us that don't be discouraged, even though you look around and it looks like evil is winning, it looks like there's chaos in the world. Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne. Uh, that Jesus is actually going to redeem all of history and he's going to rewrite the story uh, to his ending that he has designed and he is planning on. And we, we get a foreshadow of that in the book of Revelation. So Jesus is king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the emperor of emperors, the president of presidents, the prime minister of prime ministers. This is the main message of the book of Revelation. And so we see that Jesus is sitting on the throne at the center of the universe. Over and over and over again, this is the encouragement that the church gets uh, in the book of Revelation. But Jesus is not just the king of kings. Jesus is not just the Lord of lords. And it's important that we recognize the whole scope of how Jesus is described in the book of Revelation. In fact, some people would say Jesus is only King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But we, when we read the book of Revelation, we, we, we recognize that there's another foundational reality to who Jesus is. And I don't know if you caught it in the text when we read it this morning, Revelation 19. Jesus is also the bridegroom. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus both king and bridegroom. And in fact, I would argue that uh, the Christian church has often got this wrong by overemphasizing one or the other. You know, I've been, in part, uh, been part of certain conversations that people insist that Jesus don't talk about Jesus like he's your lover or your boyfriend or, you know, they critique the ways that maybe some denomination of churches talk about Jesus. And they say, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he's the emperor of emperors, he's in the middle of the throne, and yes, that is true. But he's also described throughout scripture as a lover, as the spouse of God's people, 
as the bridegroom. But if we only focus here, then we can also lose the reality that Jesus isn't just uh, someone that makes you feel comfortable and loved. He's also someone that we must submit to. So both of these truths and realities we see in Revelation are necessary to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so Jesus is the bridegroom. And now this is one of the seven Beatitudes found in the book of Revelation. And, and uh, you shouldn't be surprised that there's seven Beatitudes, seven blessed statements in the book of Revelation, because the, the number seven is really important to the whole book. And so really quickly, Beatitude number one says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Beatitude number two, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Beatitude three, blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. Beatitude five, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. Beatitude six, blessed are those who obey the words of the prophecy written in this book. Beatitude seven, blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. And then Beatitude 4, which is the center of all the other Beatitudes, the pivotal Beatitude in the book of Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The message of Revelation is that Jesus is getting married. Jesus is getting married. He's been engaged to get married, and the wedding day is coming. Now, I can remember... Over 19 years ago, my, my wife Lisa and I just celebrated our 19th anniversary uh, this past month. And over 19 years ago, uh, when I was uh, just a young lad deciding uh, whom I was going to marry, and uh, I decided that I would marry her, and I was in Bible college at the time in Saskatchewan. Uh, she, she was there, but not, she was at that time living in Calgary. Uh, and so I made plans to come and uh, get engaged and to, to surprise her. Uh, and so we made a plan. Uh, her sister was in uh, college with me. And so her sister and I drove uh, from Hepburn, Saskatchewan to Calgary uh, to, uh, to kind of propose and set the scene for the proposal in, in Calgary. Uh, and I had uh, a student loan, thankfully, and so I had a little bit of money. Uh, and so I took money from my student loan and I purchased an engagement ring uh, for Lisa. And so we drove uh, from Saskatchewan uh, to Calgary and we set up her, her house. She was at work at the day when we got there and we set up the house, uh, you know, nice and romantically. And she got home from work that day uh, and didn't know I was coming. And there was kind of this pathway of candles into the living room. And, uh, and I was there with my engagement ring and I asked her to marry me. And she, she said, yes. Um, and so we, we got married, and then we wanted to celebrate, and so we kind of had this plan to go to the Calgary Tower for supper to celebrate our engagement supper. And so we get there, uh, and this is, a, this is a big deal for a young boy getting married. And, uh, you know, the waitress comes around to the table and, you know, says, can I get you an appetizer? And I said, of course. You know, this is our engagement night, you know. Uh, spare no expense, right? And so, you know, I got the appetizer, we look at the menu, um, you know, there's some nice fancy meals there. And, you know, I say to Lisa, you know, get what you want. This is our engagement night. And so we get, you know, the, the nicest entree. The, wait, the waiter comes back and says, 
you know, would you like a dessert? And I say, of course, you know, this is our engagement night. Spare no expense. Uh, and so we get the dessert and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. The night goes on and, uh, you know, some of you have heard the story before. The, the, the bill comes to our table and, uh, and I go and take my debit card and I, uh, I punch in my code and I get this message on the machine that says insufficient funds. Lisa sees a little bit of a, a nervous look on my face. She says, something wrong? I was like, no, no, no. It's just a, um, you know, I say a short prayer in that moment. Like, dear Jesus, please fill my bank account. So I swipe the card again and t- type in my code again. It says insufficient funds. Uh, and then, you know, no, no guy who gets engaged to a girl wants to have this moment on that day. And I said, I don't have any money. Um, do you have a card on you that you could use to pay for this meal? Um, and thankfully she did. And so uh, she paid for the engagement meal. Uh, so off to a great start, right? And then, uh, and so I remember this part actually uh, very clearly that after we went, after we did that, after she paid for the meal and we went back uh, to her house and celebrated with her family, already that night, uh, we had started making a guest list for the wedding. The, the, the wedding plans just started moving right away. Um, so I don't know if uh, any guys here have married w- women like that that like planning, right? So as soon as the decision, <laughs> I get an amen. As soon as the decision was made that we were getting married, it was like wedding pl- I was like, what happened? Uh, I got no money. I got no say. I got no. Um, and so the, you know, we started making the guest list uh, right away. Uh, and so I'm reminded of these, uh, the scenarios that happen, these, these engagement realities, particularly in spring where there's a lot of um, people that got engaged in the winter and now are getting married and there's lots of weddings even happening in the church. But uh, there's some form that we have in our culture of getting engaged, uh, doing the ceremony, doing the wedding, making the guest list. Uh, all of these things are actually not unique to our culture. The, the way that we go about getting married, uh, there's a lot of similarities that we have even to the first century, some, some differences. Uh, but when we read the book of Revelation, uh, and it's using the metaphor of marriage, it is bringing in all of these elements to what it is describing. In Revelation 21, verses 2, um, and so we should be asking the question, who is it that's getting married? If Jesus is engaged to get married, who is it that is getting married? And so in Revelation 21, verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Revelation 21, 9 to 10. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The new city, the new Jerusalem, is the new creation. The new creation is the new city. And so God loves the new creation. God loves what he has created. And he is engaged to be married to the new creation, to the new city. The new city is marrying the lamb, is marrying Jesus. And we've been invited to be a part of the wedding feast as guests so that we can observe those exchange of vows. And so Jesus is getting married. And we've been invited to be there as guests. But that is not all. Jesus is getting married, and we're not only invited to be there as guests, we're invited to be there as his bride. This is consistent through the whole biblical narrative that God is coming to marry his people. 
So God is not just marrying this city, this new creation, this entity. It's made up of individuals who have said yes. And when I bent down on a knee and Lisa said yes, it was that yes that actually informed what that wedding day was going to look like, was going to happen or not. In the same way, it's those that have said yes to the Lamb that are invited to participate in the wedding of the Lamb because Jesus is coming to marry not just the city, but people. And in light of the rest of Revelation and the imagery that we see, I would, I would suggest that the wedding invitation, if Jesus was sending out, would look something like this. There's a date, and it's coming soon. We don't yet know exactly when, but soon. Where? It's going to be in the New Jerusalem. Who? Jesus and you. And yet, ironically, even though you are on the invitation, you've also been invited to the wedding as a guest. The Lord God, the Almighty, and this is what it says, who was and is and is to come. The God and the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, the giver of life, out of a sevenfold fullness, invite you to the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, who has won the victory over sin and evil and death, who takes away the sin of the world. RSVP ASAP. This is the message of Revelation. That Jesus is getting married, that there's a wedding that's going to happen, and the time is soon. And you've been invited, yes, as a guest, but you've also been invited as the bride. And up until this point, the people of God have been called followers, citizens, priests, those who represent God to the world and represent the world to God, this role of the priests. Sons and daughters of God. These have all been descriptions to describe the people of God in the book of Revelation, but by far the most important picture, metaphor that is used to describe the people of God in Revelation, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, is the bride. We are called the wife of the Lamb. And if you go through Scripture, you will see, even if we just start by looking in the New Testament here, you will see that this type of picture is normative. It is a normative way of talking about God's people and relationship with Jesus. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he's in trouble because, and he was always in trouble, <laughs> often with the religious authorities because he didn't, didn't do things the way that uh, they wanted him to do it. Uh, he wasn't following the rules of the Pharisees, especially about fasting. And so Jesus responds to this pressure from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders by saying this. Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. Jesus referring to himself as the groom. Many of Jesus' parables are about wedding feasts, some of them clearly about himself. In Matthew 20, 22, 22, verse 2, it says, He said, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great feast for his son. And the parable goes on to tell of those who ignored the wedding invitation that they got in the mail and they didn't show up to the wedding feast. And so the servants are told to go out into the community, invite anybody in. Whoever is willing, whoever is willing to say yes, can come to the wedding feast. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about his coming again and about the foolish attendance of the bride who forgot to bring oil for their own lamps. And it says, at midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. Jesus' first miracle that he ever did in, in his public ministry was to turn water into wine in a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And why would Jesus choose to do this as his very first miracle, as his, the start of his public ministry, unless it was signifying something about the type of ministry that he was going to do? 
In some ways, starting his ministry at a wedding miracle tells us that it's the whole story and the whole ending of it is actually going to be about that as well. John the Baptist is asked about the ministry, about Jesus' ministry, and about, or he's asked about his ministry and the role of what he's doing uh, when he's out in the wilderness. And John says this, he says, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand up with him and hear his vows. The John the Baptist saw himself as a best man, so to speak, of Jesus. Um, and so he was going to stand up for Jesus at Jesus' wedding. That's my role. It's to tell people about the wedding. It's to tell people about the time. It's to invite people to be a part of it. John saw himself as the best man to Jesus' wedding. Jesus meets a woman at a well in Samaria. And as soon as we read the text that Jesus is with a woman at a well, our eyes should be opening and our ears should be perking up because it's not the first time that a male has met a woman at a well in the biblical story. And what has happened every single time that a man meets a woman at a well? They get married. Over and over again, this is the scene, uh, the narrative through the scripture. When J- Isaac meets Rebekah at a well, they get married. When Jacob meets Rachel, they get married. When Moses meets Zipporah, they get married. And Jesus meets this woman at a well, and he says to her, um, he says, to go, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. You actually had five husbands, and now you're living with a man who's not your husband And what is happening in this situation? Does the woman at the well realize that what she is looking for in a spouse is actually there in the person of Jesus? The husband that she was created to marry is now there inviting her to a wedding. In the Old Testament is littered with references of the people of God being called to be the wife of God. And so when we think about marriage customs in the first century, uh, it's actually help, helpful for us to understand the imagery in Revelation and the rest of Scripture. And there was three steps into getting married, and there was the engagement, uh, similar to today. People would get engaged, and, uh, but more technically, it was a betrothal. Uh, and so it was almost like a next level of engagement. The prospective groom would leave his father's house, traveled by a company of his, uh, of his best men that were going to stand up for him, and they would go to the prospective a bride, uh, but they would go to the bride's husband, or bride's, not husband, bride's father, um, and that there would be almost a transaction or a business deal done for the daughter. It's first century, so don't, uh, don't freak out here. Uh, this was how it often happened. And so the, the groom, the potential groom, would uh, finalize and decide on a purchase price for the bride. And I'm so glad we don't do this today, because if I had to pay a purchase price when I got engaged to Lisa, obviously we wouldn't be married. Uh, I didn't have a lot to go off of there. Uh, so they would decide on a purchase price for the groom to get married to the bride. And so with that in mind, even pay attention to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6.19. He says, Paul asks, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. This is wedding language that we don't often realize when we read the biblical text. This is wedding language that God has bought his people with a high price. The price of his blood, the price of his life. We are not our own. We are his. We have been purchased. And so the bride is those whom the lamb have purchased out of the falling world to live in the new world in which he is creating. 
Listen to these words that we've already read in Revelation in light of this. In Revelation 5 verse 9, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Wedding language. Revelation 14 verse 3, The 144,000, the redeemed people of God, have been purchased from the earth. The Lamb has bought people from all over the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, with the price of his blood to be married to him. And as soon as the, the groom would decide on a purchase price, the marriage technically went into effect. The man and the woman were legally husband and wife, and so engagement in that time uh, was even more serious than engagement in, in our time. So when you were engaged to be married, you were essentially married in that day. She was declared to be consecrated to the groom, to be set apart for the groom, and even though they didn't have sex at this point, that would happen later when the wedding feast would happen, they were considered to be uh, a, a unit together. Uh, and so the, uh, when the engagement would be called off, if that were to ever happen, the woman and the men would be de- declared as divorced. So that's how they kind of saw the engagement period. And so the man, after this moment, when they decided on the purchase price and they were engaged to be married, would go away for roughly about 12 months during that betrothal period. And so then there was this time of preparation. During the time of preparation, the groom would prepare a room on his father's house. And so when you got married, you actually, uh, sorry, ladies, you moved in with your in-laws on their property. Doesn't that sound like a good time? Uh, we have some parents here that are like, that's my reality. I actually have my kids living with me right now. Uh, and so during this time of preparation, the groom would go away. He would build a room uh, onto the father's house. And then uh, later that, that couple would move in to the, the male's family uh, on their property. And now, although they didn't see each other during this time, as I said, they were legally and spiritually bound, bound together. <clears throat> this beautiful engagement agreement, this covenant was so binding. Uh, like I said, if someone died or the engagement was, was taken off, it was seen as a divorce. At the end of the period, the bridegroom dressed in festive attire and accompanied by his groomsmen, at the end of that 12 months approximately, they would go to the bride's house. Now, the bride didn't know exactly when the groom was going to show up. They had a rough idea about what time period uh, when they were going to come back, but they didn't know exactly which day. They didn't know exactly which time. And so the bride had to be ready for the return of her groom. She had to prepare herself. And so the groom was gone preparing a place for the bride. The bride was waiting, preparing herself for the marriage that was about to happen. In Revelation 19, 7, 8, it said, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. And there's a tension in this verse and there's a tension, it's the same tension we see throughout the scriptures. On one hand, the bride has made herself ready. On the other hand, the groom is making her ready. So which is it? Do God's people make themselves ready or does God make them ready? And the answer is yes. Both are true when we look at the scripture that both of these things are happening at the same time, that God is preparing a place and we are preparing ourselves with the help of God. This is similar to the tension that is said in Philippians chapter two, where it says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act. And so in that verse, we see that we are to continue to work out our salvation, and it is God who works in us, preparing us. And so there's something that God is doing, and there's also something that we are to be doing. And the book of Revelation is really about how we ought to be living and preparing ourselves during this time of preparation of waiting for the groom to return. And then the third part is the wedding supper. There would have been the ceremony. So when the, the, the groom showed back up, uh, right away they would kind of launch into the wedding supper. They, he would get the bride, bring him back to the father's house, and there would be this big celebration uh, with, where they would do vows, where they would commit themselves to one another for life. And that would start this wedding supper, the celebration, except it wasn't one meal. It wasn't a one-time event. Those celebrations went on for seven days or for up to 14 days. Now, can you imagine being the father of the bride footing the bill for a 14-day wedding? Ouch. Uh, So that was what was happening in that culture. Now, about AD 33, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's gathering with his disciples. He's having a Passover meal with them, um, and he's, he's... actually taking the symbols that they used to use as Jewish people, and he's now renaming or giving them new meaning today. And he takes this cup of wine, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, this cup is the new covenant that I am making with you. Then Jesus tells them that he's going to leave. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also me. There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, I would have told you that I am not that I'm going to prepare. Sorry, if this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. Do you hear what Jesus is claiming? What he's saying in John 14 is the same thing that John is being shown in the Revelation. In Revelation 19, that Jesus came, invited people to come to his wedding, invited people to be married to him. And he said, I am going away. I'm going to prepare a place. And there's going to be a time when I come back. And when I come back, there's going to be a wedding feast. There's going to be this union between God and his bride. We are betrothed. We are actually engaged to Jesus and waiting on him to return. And so this gives us dignity. This gives us purpose. This gives us a framework for how we ought to live our lives between the first and the second coming of Jesus. It also gives dignity to Jesus. And this is important for us to to talk about really quickly. Speaking of Jesus as the bridegroom, in the Old Testament, it is God who is the groom, who is the husband of God's people. The New Testament is claiming that Jesus of Nazareth is actually God with flesh on. That the Old Testament prophecies that talked about God marrying his people is actually fulfilled in Jesus. In Isaiah 54, it says, Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid. There is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood. For your creator will be your husband. Isaiah 61.10, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with clothing of salvation and draped me with robe of his righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. And so on it goes. 
In Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3, Ezekiel chapter 16, the whole book of Hosea, we see the same type of themes, that God is going to marry his people. And in the New Testament in Revelation, we see that God shows up as Jesus. The Lamb who stands at the center of the universe is the center of everything, is the God of the Old Testament who we were promised would show up and marry his people. And so Jesus has shown up and the invitations have gone out and you're invited, not just to be a guest, but you're actually invited to participate in the wedding, to be the bride. And so the book of Revelation, in many ways, is just a love letter. We could call it a love letter. We don't normally think of it that way. But if you remind yourselves when the book started and what was John's message to those seven churches, he said to the church in Ephesus that the church the church that seemingly had everything all together, he said, this I have against you. You have lost your first love. For all their programs and effective ministries, they were busybodies that had forgotten to be intimate with God. To the church in Thyatira, a church under great pressure to compromise their love and their loyalty to Jesus, Jesus said this to them. He warns them of the real possibility of adultery, and he speaks to them about compromising with the powers around them, and he refers to them as committing adultery, words of intimacy. To the church in Laodicea, the church that thinks it has it all, it's wealthy, it's rich, it's comfortable, it doesn't have any needs for anything, Jesus says this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, open the door. I will come in to you and dine with you and you with me. And as we pointed out when we read that text, when we started it, um, 12 weeks ago, if you remember, uh, Song of Solomon, it comes from Psalm of Solomon chapter 5, verse 2, which God says, the voice of my beloved, he knocks at the door, open to me, my beloved. It's a text about intimacy. The book of Revelation is about intimacy. The whole book is a love letter. It's a letter that's telling us that we are in danger of being seduced by Babylon, that the apocalypse, the revelation is that the dragon is at work with what's going on in our world, trying to capture our hearts and steal our hearts. The call of revelation is actually to turn your heart towards the one you were created to love, to be with. Don't be seduced. Don't fall for a false lover who will never satisfy you. Give your heart to Jesus. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we could add, blessed are those who say yes to the invitation that Jesus has set out, sent out. I think a part of my job as a pastor is sometimes to help people follow through on the decision that they've already made. Part of my role as a pastor is trying to encourage us not to lose our first love. And for some of us, maybe to commit to that love for the first time. I remember the very first wedding that I officiated was actually the wedding of my younger brother. And I went back to Clarny, Manitoba, and he was getting married there to a girl from Clarny. Um, and he was even younger than I was when he got married. And we were in the back room about to, get, uh, about to walk out into the stage where the ceremony was going to start. Uh, and he was sobbing and having a panic attack. <sighs> He was like, he was freaking out and he was turning red and he was sweating. And I'm um, like, he was having like a mental breakdown uh, in that back room. And I actually, it's my first wedding. Uh, 
went up to him, slapped him across the face. <laughs> True story. Slapped him across his face, and I looked at my watch and said, it's time, we got to go. And then we walked out into the stage, and he got married, and he's still married, so... But sometimes we get like all caught up in our anxiety and our worries and what's happening in our lives. And much in the same way, I just feel like sometimes we need to slap and say, wake up. We're engaged to be married. There's a bridegroom who's returning. There's a wedding that is about to start. Focus. Don't forget your first love. For some of you today, this is the first time you have heard the invitation to enter into a relationship with Jesus. He has sent you the invitation. He is waiting for your yes. You can say yes today. For some of you, you have known you were invited for a long time. But for one reason or another, you've delayed giving a response. You've delayed giving your yes to the invocation and you quit stalling. And maybe today is the day you say, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to come. I'm going to be a part of that wedding. For some today, that invitation got lost in a pile of bills and to-do lists and the life's worries, and it's just under there in a stack of a whole bunch of other things, and you're like, I'm going to get to it one day. But this is not one of among many things. This is the thing that you were created for. And so maybe today is, is the decision to say, you know what, I'm done waiting for the right time. I'm going to say yes for some of you today, your invitation is buried in layers of guilt and shame. And you think, well, if Jesus only knew who I was and what I've done, he wouldn't want to marry me. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. Because Jesus knows exactly what you've done. He knows exactly who you are. He saw it before you were even made. And yet, he still died on the cross, spilt his blood, paid the purchasing price you because he loves you and he wants to be with you knowing everything about you. The invitation has gone out. Will you say yes? Will you say yes for the first time? Maybe for maybe like you for the first century churches that this were written to, you're actually invited to turn your hearts back to the bridegroom. You've lost your first love. And maybe it's a yes to say, you know what, this has become not the primary thing in my life anymore and I'm saying yes to make it the center thing. Maybe you want to say yes to being baptized, which, uh, you know, baptism has always been somewhat of that uh, engagement ceremony, so to speak, in the church where people commit their lives and their love to Jesus through the ceremony of baptism. Maybe you've intended to say yes, you've wanted to say yes your whole life, but you've never taken the step of obedience to get baptized. And maybe your yes today is to say, you know what, I'm doing it. If you want to get baptized, you can uh, leave your name at the Welcome Center. We would love to follow up with you. But I don't know what your yes today is, but I know that the invitation for every one of us is the same. And then I know that there's a bridegroom that's coming back. And he's coming back for his bride. Are you going to be there when he returns? Are you going to say yes? I want to invite you to stand with me before we close in a song. I would just invite you to close your eyes as we respond to this invitation. Uh, with our eyes closed, 
thinking back to that invitation that we read, that has gone out and you're invited to be a guest, yes, but you're actually invited to be the bride. And so again, maybe for some of you for the first time or maybe some of you are just want to return your heart and your priorities to their appropriate place, I would just invite you to raise a hand and say, this is a yes. I'm going to give Jesus my yes. I've heard the invitation in this time of waiting and preparation. I'm going to say yes. I just invite you to raise a hand wherever you are, your eyes closed, giving Jesus my yes. Thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you've invited us. We thank you that you have purchased us. We thank you that you do not force us, that you are a gentleman, but you are passionate. You are a jealous lover nonetheless. That's what we see in Scripture, that you have prepared a place for us that you have already given us your yes. And so, Lord, we respond by saying yes. We await the day when the bridegroom returns, when we will be united forever, when all things will be returned to the way they ought to be, when we will live fully the way you created us to live. Lord, for some of us, maybe we have lost that intimacy that your word speaks about. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts not with apathy, but with passion, with conviction, with a desire to be with you. And I pray that we would prepare ourselves in the present or the future that you have called us to be a part of. We look forward to that wedding. In Jesus' name, amen. powerful song talking about God's love for us Um, as I said he has given us his yes and he wants us to give us give him ours Um, and so perhaps you were one of the ones that raised a hand this morning and said you know I want to give my yes to Jesus and whatever that might look like for you Um, I would encourage you to come forward we'd love to pray with you after the service if you want prayer for anything else Uh, we'd love to pray for whatever uh, might be on your heart uh, as well Um, But I want to conclude just by reading uh, the Beatitudes that we find in Scripture. Uh, There's Beatitudes in Revelation, there's Beatitudes in Matthew 5 um, as well. And these give us a picture uh, of how to live in light of the truth that we've been talking about. And so would you close your eyes with me uh, as uh, we... As I speak these Beatitudes over you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for relationship, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of right relationships, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who stay awake as we wait for the bridegroom. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. And finally, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and say yes. So Jesus, we want to be blessed. We want to be your bride. And we thank you that you are preparing us. We also thank you that we have something to do in the present. And may we, may we be people that live in the present in light of the wedding that is coming. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. Uh, We'll see you next week.